0: You're about to hear a classic Curbsiders episode, and if you haven't heard it yet, you're in for a real treat. And if you have heard it already, well, then listen again, because these are so packed with pearls, there's no way you remember everything. But if you still just need new episodes, well, head over to our Patreon, where we've already released something like 16 to 18 brand new episodes, and we're releasing two new ones every month. Plus, you can join our Discord, hang out with the team, ask us questions. It's a lot of fun over there. Patreon.com slash curbsiders. And we wanted to let you know that starting January 1st, 2024, VCU Health has let us know that they're going to have to start charging a small fee for CME credit. We understand why they need to do this, and we thank them for all the years of free CME credit for our listeners. We will continue to offer CME for episodes going forward through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Welcome back to the Curbsiders and no interruption, no Paul, no Stuart. I do have a co-host tonight. We are talking about hypercalcemia. We have a fantastic guest, Dr. Carl Pillay. I wanted to remind the audience that this episode and most of our episodes are available for CME credit through VCU Health Continuing Education. You can go to curbsiders.vcuhealth.org and that is free for all our listeners I'm going to introduce our producer, friend, co-host in a second here, but I just want to remind the audience that we are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. We have quite a guest tonight, and we have quite a co-host. This is Dr. Nora Plaut-Toronto. She is a rising third year resident at an institution. I'll leave it up to her if she wants to name it, but uh, she is going to tell us about the guest. Nora, how have you been?
2: I have been so well. Um, (laughs) I just came off of the medical ICU, so I am living outside in the sun a tiny bit more than I was for the last few weeks. You got to get some vitamin D. I know, exactly. Though not too much, as we'll learn. Not too much.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, You know, audience, I know a lot of you are in training and, and school. It's just, it just, all I did was binge watch Netflix when I was uh, in training and in school. So Dr. Toronto is just, it's just so impressive. All the, all the students and residents on our team, I'm just always so impressed. Uh, Nora, can you tell the audience about our guest and then we'll get on because this is a we, this is a huge topic and we want to get right to it.
2: Totally. And the topic was definitely one that I I can use clarity on every time I learn about it or relearn about it. So Dr. Pillay came to us today. Um, He is a associate director of the internal medicine residency program at Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is where I am a trainee currently. Um, He is the master clinician in the division of endocrinology and the director of the endocrine genetics clinic at Brigham and Women's as well. Originally from Nicaragua and having grown up in New Orleans. He's now an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School as well and is an executive member of the Harvard Undiagnosed Diseases Network that utilizes advanced phenotyping and genomic tools to understand complex disorders that have avoided diagnosis. He loves everything to do with calcium and bone and runs the hypophosphatemia clinic at Brigham and Women's Hospital as well. And during this episode, it was really remarkable to hear him talk with such passion about calcium and phosphate and everything in between, taught us not to panic when we see real elevations in calcium in our primary care patients, and instead to methodically think through the details of the labs we check to hone our differential. So without further ado, let's get to it.
0: Carl, thank you so much for joining us. And the first question, as always, is can you give the audience a one-liner and please throw in some sort of hobby outside of medicine?
1: Well, thank you, Matt. Um, So I am a food-loving physician, husband and father who's got a passion for travel, rare disorders, and uh, point-of-care ultrasounds. And my favorite thing is traveling. But unfortunately, um, I was grounded for the last year uh, because of COVID
0: the the rare diseases thing i i saw that in your bio and i was very intrigued by that are how often are you getting these consults for rare diseases is this like a half day that you do or is it like once in a while you just get called and they're like we got this mystery case you're like the doctor house and you got to figure it out
1: no so there's it's an application process so people like we meet regularly like every like a uh, uh, other week at least and then, uh, so people end up applying to this program. And then we meet, like it's a very large uh, multidisciplinary committee with representatives from the Brigham, Mass General, and Children's Hospitals to find out if they actually end up, but uh, we should accept them. And if we accept them, then the, the workup starts.
0: Oh, fascinating. I, that, that's probably going to be another, a whole other show at some point, Nora.
2: <laughs> yeah. Is it part of the, the, Broader Undiagnosed Diseases Network? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that is, yeah. it's like
0: start off at the
1: NIH and then it's yeah. become like actually multiple centers now. Okay.
2: Yeah. I actually, I got to round with them at NIH once. It was yes. very, very cool.
1: It is incredible. I mean, like, you yeah. know, the stuff that we, uh, that we do, we have the Brighams predominantly adults, but we have both a uh, Mass General and uh, um, children's hospital who do a lot of pediatrics. They solve a lot more cases than we do. <laughs> but it's not fair. It's like they're, they're pediatric a lot of cases. storage.
0: They figure yes. out a lot of storage disorders right. and things. Yes.
1: <laughs> it's like their primary tool is genome sequencing. And then, <laughs> you know, they, they have like the kids, patients who are in the pediatric stage, they tend to have a little bit more of a bias for a genetic uh, uh, disease.
0: Sounds like there's a little yeah. bit of a rivalry, Nora. If I'm it's reading between good. the lines. It's all good.
1: It's all good. Not a rivalry yeah, No, not a rivalry. It's a, really a great, it's a great collaboration
2: between all wow. the different
0: centers. Well, super cool that you do that.
2: Amazing. I guess jumping off of that, is there, are there any books that you would recommend that every physician should read, whether they're interested in rare diseases or otherwise?
1: You know, it, it is one of my favorite books of all time is *A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. I mean, it is about a quirky character going through life and like uh, surviving mischief. And I think that it's actually, it's a great reminder of the richness of humanity. I mean, like, you know, how we all actually end up having our own little quirks. It's a great book. It's a great read. Uh, Highly recommend it.
0: Yeah. If you describe it to someone, it sounds like it would be boring. It's just like this middle-aged dude that lives with his mom and somehow he's like very confident in himself. It it just but it it is so funny. i it's It took hilarious. me completely by surprise yeah. when i when I read it.
1: Uh, I do I do think about Don Quixote. I mean, like that's exactly <laughs> what I think about
0: right. Well, good recommendation uh, since since my uh, Paul and Stuart aren't here, I know uh, I know Stuart if he were here. He would ask you, can you think of a time you had some sort of a failure? It could have been with a patient. It could have been a patient complaining about something or it could have been something you tried for, didn't achieve. Can you tell us about that and uh, what, what you learned from it?
1: I mean, I would say one of the biggest things that I, I've thought a lot about recently, and it's not, a, it's not patient related, but it is more about uh, because of the pandemic, we've been stuck in our house for a long time. I mean, like we really have been here uh, and the entire family together, like on top (laughs) of each other. So it has made me appreciate our home a lot and the the distribution of space. We have like, it's very vertical house and it's got like a yard (laughs) and it's got a close proximity to the river. And I still remember, I was appreciating so much this past year that I remember how devastated I was when we didn't get the uh, house that we put our first bid on. And I remember that. I remember that feeling. It's like, oh my goodness, we couldn't get in. We had like invested a lot of time. Um, and eventually, you know, like we're so glad, like in retrospect, I am so glad we didn't get that house and we ended up with this one that fits us off. It fits us a little bit better. I, I appreciate it a lot more during this pandemic.
0: I I hear you on that one. My goodness. Yeah, you need you want all the little nooks and, and yes. outdoor spots and uh, hiding places from whoever you're living with. Even yes. if you're just, even if you're by yourself with some cats, I'm sure you need some alone time.
1: Exactly. <laughs> it, it really, it's just like, it's great to be vertical, right? Like, so then that way it's like, you don't hear everybody else's <laughs> like, like Zoom meetings uh, in the background.
0: I, I have a pair of uh, of earmuffs, like industrial <laughs> earmuffs that I wear. And then I just like play the same song over and over again, if I'm trying to do any kind of like cognitive work at home, because yes. it can get crazy around here. Yes, yes. <laughs> Nora, anything else before we get on to, uh, b- before we get on the, the topic hypercalcemia, anything else you wanted to ask Carl?
2: I guess one, one question that we often ask that I'm curious your answer to is, is whether you have any advice that you kind of remember as being the best advice or the advice that stuck with you the most as a learner or kind of as a teacher now that you, you've become a teacher for so many.
1: Yeah, I do think that this is actually one of the best advices that I got in, in, in high school. And it has actually, I think about it a lot. And, it, and I thought about it as a student. And I now think about it as a, as a teacher. And it was like not to let schooling interfere with your education, right? So now like, you know, residency is not a schooling part, but any training program has a general structure for your education. But in reality, what you need is not the general, like what you need is really something that's driven from inside. It's about take ownership of your own education. And I think that really, that advice that I got in high school really allowed me to be free in pursuing things that I was interested in. And when I teach now, I actually recognize that in in, in our trainees saying like, I'm going to provide what I think, you know, we should provide everybody, but you yourself can actually end up like deviating from this. To uh, um, learn more and like learn what's actually what you need to know for your interests and for your uh, eventual career.
0: I I think that's why I, I always like looked at people that were older than me that seemed to be so excited about things they were learning about, like adults. Uh, For me, for me, it was usually like old men, like my dad or or like my dad or my uncles. And they're telling me about like whatever, you know, tomato plants or something. But I think it's because they're just like, there's no obligation. They're just learning about it because they're super interested and they just like dive into it. And I, I think medicine kind of became that way for me once I left training and uh, it's been a lot more enjoyable uh, to, to learn. And I, and teaching myself how to learn different, you know, I probably could do better if I went back and now yeah. that I've like had, had this new outlook on things. It's, it's a really great point. I like, you learned it so, so young. Yeah. That's great.
1: Yeah. I, I think it's, it's actually, it, it it makes you inefficient, but overall in the big, in the big picture, you learn more and, mm-hmm. and you learn more to like what you want to actually end up pursuing.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, th- I think this show has actually been a very nice outlet for, for me to do that since I yeah. joined the team. Cause it, it, Matt and everyone else have allowed me to to kind of dive into the topics that I'm really interested in and and figure them out a little bit outside of the traditional medical education sphere. So
0: Yeah, it's been quite a variety too, Nora, I have to say. And you're pu- you're pulling us along all of us along and the audience on this journey. Why don't we start our journey into hypercalcemia and if you want to tell us about our first case or our case from Kashlak here?
2: Sure. So we've got Ms. Calcima, who is a 58-year-old female coming in for routine labs and an annual physical. She, like many others, has not come in in quite a while because of the COVID pandemic, but she's feeling well overall, maybe a little tired and achy from sitting at home so much, she says. And she doesn't have very many other complaints. She does have a history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and bipolar disorder that have all been previously well-controlled. So you get a basic set of labs, since you haven't in a while. Sodium is 137, potassium of 4, creatinine of 0.9, sugar of 104, magnesium of 2, calcium of 11. Her LFTs, the liver function tests, all normal, albumin of 3.7, and her uh, CBC is normal. So first, just some technical questions. Uh, one of the, the abnormal Labs here is the calcium. And so, just very briefly to remind us, what's a normal calcium level and, and what are we doing with the albumin, if anything?
1: Yes. Yeah. So, normal calcium levels in general end up ranging between 8.5 and 10.5 milligrams per deciliter. And it varies a little bit by assay, but that's the, the general range. And then the, the, you should correct for albumin. And that's because only about 50% of that total calcium is really ionized or free. And that's really the the portion of the calcium that the body cares about. About 40% of that total is actually bound to albumin. It's like, remember, calcium is a positively charged element, and uh, albumin is a predominantly negatively charged molecule. So you end up binding a lot of that calcium to the albumin. About 10% of the total calcium is bound up to uh, other other, uh, anions like phosphates or lactate or citrate. So the 50% that's ionized is the working calcium in many ways. Uh, And that is, um, you know, that's what you're correcting for. When you say you correct for albumin, it's an approximation of how much of that total is going to be representing the ionized calcium uh, because it's not bound up to albumin.
0: Hi, everyone. We are thrilled that this episode of Curbsiders is sponsored by Glass Health. Glass Health was founded in 2021 and has a mission of empowering doctors with AI powered clinical decision support. Glass helps clinicians to draft differential diagnoses and draft clinical plans using physician validated context. You can also use Glass to capture knowledge of all the schemas, scripts, cases and pearls that you encounter and leverage them to take better care of patients. So try Glass for yourself by visiting Glass.Health. Personal knowledge management features are completely free and with Glass Pro you get access to their powerful AI. You can get one month of Glass Pro free by signing up at Glass. Dot health and using the code CurbSiders. That is an amazing deal. That's one month of GlassPro Free by signing up at GLASS.health and using the code curbsiders. Glass, like clinical reference text or podcasts, should never replace Clinician Judgment. With a patient like Miss Calcemia uh or Calcema, sorry, uh the name is just like finishing uh anyway, so Miss <laughs> Mrs. Calcema. So her, her calcium of 11, um, my, my inclination would be repeat the lab, fingers crossed, it comes back normal. Is that, is that a wrong move?
1: <laughs> Always. I think like it's, not a, it's never a bad thing to end up repeating an abnormal calcium value, particularly for something that's unexpected, right? I mean, like repeat it. Um, it is not unusual to, to end up having a transiently uh, elevated calcium load from somebody who's very dehydrated. And it goes back to the albumin component. Um, so it is uh, albumin. Most of the time, the reason we correct for the albumin is that any condition, there's many conditions in medicines that lower the albumin uh, levels. They will artificially lower the total calcium, but the ionized calcium will actually end up staying the same. And then you may mask a normal calcium level may actually end up masking and high ionized calcium value if you have low albumin. So you should actually end up always in your mind, connect calcium and albumin.
0: I think what you get a lot of in primary care when you're ordering a bunch of labs on people is you'll get a calcium that's in like the 10.2 to 10.6 or 7 yeah. range and it, it flags as high and and then you're just like what what do I do with this is yeah. this am I going to really work this person up fully and we'll talk about the workup yeah um so usually I try my repeat strategy sometimes it still <laughs> exactly. comes back yes. and then you're going to you're going to teach us how to think about that yeah. um but you men- you mentioned ionized calcium yeah. um how important is that? And like is that I know in the inpatient side, it's ordered a lot. do you yes. do you order that on your outpatients much? And like when should we think about using that like on a patient like miss Mrs. Calcima here with her calcium of eleven?
1: Yeah, I, I don't order the ionized calcium a lot in the in the ambulatory setting, and a lot of it has to do with uh, the the measurement. Remember like uh, um remember how I told you that what calcium, a positive charge element binds a negatively charged molecule of albumin. That is the normal, st- the normal state, and then about 50% of that total calcium is going to be ionized. If pH changes the proportion of that total calcium that's bound to the uh, negative charges of albumin, because if you let that sample sit in the, in the uh, counter, the pH in the sample changes and usually becomes a little bit more acidotic because of the um, products of metabolism of the, of the cells within the, the, the tube. So, as you build up acid, that's, hydro, that, that's a hydrogen proton that basically can displace some of the uh, calcium from the albumin, and the ionized calcium can be off. So, that is the reason that ionized calcium should really be done and collected on ice and run stat. Hmm. Um, So really be careful about over-interpreting ionized calcium levels when you're not certain of the way that you handle the sample. I definitely order it in the inpatient center because the labs get processed a lot more rapidly than the ambulatory setting. But always careful about interpreting ionized calcium values done in the ambulatory when usually the collection happens like maybe twice a day. And I don't know how long it actually ends up sitting. So the processing may actually end up affecting the processing of a sample may affect the ionized calcium level.
2: That's super interesting. I actually don't think I knew that about the ionized calcium.
1: Yeah, so should... and it's practical. I mean, like I would say, that's a practical mm-hmm. uh, knowledge that that uh, makes you then start saying the ionized calcium is great in the inpatient, that you can do it quickly. Uh, but not so great in the ambulatory, and that's why you're going to rely a lot more on the, on the uh, albumin correction, in which you should add like uh, 0.8 milligrams uh, per deciliter for every one gram per deciliter drop in the albumin. Uh, 0.8 to the calcium levels for every one uh, gram per deciliter drop in albumin below normal.
0: Nora, you have here a question about pseudo hypercalcemia, and I'll have to admit, I never think of that. Is that, are you, are you getting better education than I got, Nora? Like, you know, to you know, to look for this?
2: Oh, yeah. No, no. I actually, uh, I'd seen it maybe a uh a couple of times mentioned in passing, but never yeah. actually have, have had high suspicion for it. So I'm curious yeah. about kind of how you think of it, whether it acts as an actual <laughs> entity or whether we just need to adjust based on what we know is going on in the patient, such as acidosis. Yeah. Exactly.
1: I think you should, most of the time, like you actually, and exactly what you said, Matt, that sometimes you will see those calcium levels of like 10.6. And that is because the albumin's concentrated. It's like, you know, if somebody's dehydrated, it's almost like that's almost the same concept as a metabolic alkalosis like a, a contraction alkalosis that you have left water around albumin and remember like it's going to be the same amount of calcium but the less water makes the concentration a little bit higher so dehydration can actually end up causing a slight increase in the calcium and you'll see that because the album will also end up being concentrated so that's why it's really useful to actually end up having that, that correction you will, in rare cases, and I want to emphasize that there's only a subset of multiple myeloma, that you will have the monoclonal globulin that gets made uh, is negatively charged, right? So like, remember, like if you have most globulins, you're going to have a range of charges. Some are going to be, most are going to be neutral. Some are going to be slightly positive. Some are going to be slightly negative. But if you have a monoclonal uh, immunoglobulin that gets made in the grams per deciliter uh, concentration, uh, quantities, then, and if it happens to have a large of negative a large amount of negative charged amino acids, it acts like albumin, right? It will bind a large number of calciums. The total calcium levels will actually end up looking high, but the ionized, what the body regulates, is going to be normal. So that is a what I would say it's a falsely elevated calcium levels. Like the calcium levels may actually end up being high, but as long as the kidney work, the, the kidneys are working. And there's no significant amount of uh, um, a bone turnover to actually end up causing the hypercalcemia that you'll see in multiple myeloma. You could actually end up saying that that is pseudo hypercalcemia.
2: Yeah, I think that's the only context in which we've yeah. seriously thought about it as an entity. Yes.
0: With the and this is a very basic question, but I just want to make sure that I'm uh I'm not embarrassed embarrassed to ask it. So <laughs> when we're when you were giving us the breakdown earlier, the 50% is like a free or ionized, 40% albumin bound, and 10% is bound to other things. Yeah. When we get a chem seven with our calcium, it's measuring all those things and giving us the total calcium.
1: Yeah, it's and a then, total calcium. Yeah,
0: yeah, and then when we, we unless we order an ionized calcium, that's when we're just trying to measure the the free portion.
1: That's correct. Exactly. Yeah. Like you okay. only, you, you basically are. You, in reality, you're just saying what's happening to the albumin. That's cor- that um will that I should adjust the total calcium levels yeah. based on the albumin.
0: Beautiful. Got it. Got it. Okay. you think we're ready to move on to the differential, Nor? Is there any more of the technical stuff? I think we've we've got it down here. We know that I why ionized calcium is probably not practical to order in the outpatient setting unless you know they're going to throw it on ice and bring it right to the lab. So why don't you bring us to the next part of the case?
2: Awesome. So I agree totally. We've we've got a better understanding of the lab value now, and uh, we adjust Miss Sima's calcium level for her albumin, and it's around eleven point two. We of course, as Matt was saying, check her prior labs, and we don't have any prior calcium levels. Um, and so jumping a little bit back from the lab itself. Um, kind of more to the epidemiology, what what are the causes, generally speaking, in the population of hypercalcemia?
1: We tend to divide costs of hypercalcemia into either PTH-dependent and PTH-independent causes. And by far, in the ambulatory setting, somebody who is well, the number one cause of hypercalcemia is going to be primary hyperparathyroidism. That happens, and it is common. I mean, like it is actually something that we, you, most of uh, patients, uh, most of physicians who treat women of postmenopausal age will actually end up seeing it. It, About 2% of postmenopausal women actually end up having primary hyperparathyroidism. Mm. That's one in 50. You know, that's a huge number. So it is common. Most of the time it's mild, you know, and most of the time they don't have symptoms. It's just caught incidentally because of a um, blood test. So that is exactly what I'm thinking about in the inpatient setting. When patients tend to be a little bit sicker, you definitely end up uh, thinking of that. The epidemiology is that uh, hypercalcemia malignancy is probably going to be the number one cause in the inpatient setting, and that could be due through either PTHRP uh, uh, production that acts like PTH. In binding the PTH receptor, and that causes bone turnover, causes reabsorption of the filtered calcium in the, in the kidney, um, and that raises the, the the levels. It could also be because of increased bone turnover, because of metastases, and rarely some lymphomas can actually end up causing activation of, of vitamin D. But those are the two big ones. You know, if it's PTH mediated, ambulatory, it's primary hyperparathyroidism. Uh, somebody who's ill in the hospital, particularly losing weight. You tend to actually end up thinking the hypercalcium malignancies. There's other things that actually, you know, that they should always end up considering, but those are the two big ones. And we can discuss the um, we can discuss them if you if you want.
2: Within the malignancy bucket, yeah. is is there a general breakdown of kind of how many are PTHRP modulated versus other?
1: Yeah. So a lot of it depends on on the type of cancer. Uh, so a lot of the, the PTHRP, like breast cancers, a lot of the squamous cell cancers and very undifferentiated cancers tend to actually end up producing PTHRP. So it's a little bit more common. Um, and then the other one's are going to be like multiple myeloma. It's not that the, the hypercalcemia that you get from uh, multiple myeloma is not because of PTHRP. It's because of increased bone turnover. It's like you have lytic lesions that basically cause uh, leach out, uh, the cause that cause the calcium to leach out from the bone. So that's slightly different uh, mechanism. So those are the two, two extremes. And it, so it comes down to the type of cancer that the patient ends up having.
0: With a patient like... Miss um, Miss Sima, we have uh, we had given you the past medical history. She's got high blood pressure, high cholesterol. She has bipolar disorder. So, what sort of things, common things, uh, meds, and and whatnot, should we should we think about as we're taking the history and trying to figure out her hypercalcemia?
1: Absolutely, so I think that the biggest one, right? I always end up thinking she's in the right age to to actually end up having primary hyperparathyroidism, but another feature, another clinical feature that struck me about you know like in her presentations her her um, history of bipolar disorder, right I mean like and that could actually end up leading to lithium, so lithium is one of the the medicines that can cause a mild hypercalcemia, you know, in this range, I would say it's like within, within the, 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 the range that we actually end up seeing in patients who use lithium. Lithium on average increases the total calcium levels by like 0.5 milligrams per deciliter. And it does it through a PTH mediated process. And the way that it works, it's actually pretty neat. It's like one of the things that I, I kind of like gets me excited. It's like, <laughs> how does the body know what the calcium levels are? Right. I mean, like, how does it regulate this? And that's because you have sensors. You have the calcium sensing receptor that's in the parathyroid glands and it's also in the kidney. So it's a great way of the body saying if it senses that the calcium, the ionized calcium levels dropped, it makes more PTH. And at the same time, it, at the kidney, it says, let's reabsorb more calcium. So not only is PTH acting to reabsorb it, but the calcium sensing receptor in the kidneys are saying, like, let me reabsorb as well. So it's a great protection, like uh, it's a great protective mechanism, and it's beautiful how the body actually ends up doing that. You can go awry, right? I mean, like, this is exactly where things can, can. Uh, um, if you have a mutation in the calcium sensing receptor, the body always thinks that you have less calcium than you do, and it makes more PTH even though the calcium levels are high, and it reabsorbs a lot of the calcium if you, uh, eat, despite having high calcium levels in the circulation, and that's what we call familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia or FHH. And lithium acts a little bit like that. It basically messes up the, the interferes with the body's ability to sense calcium. So the calcium levels go up a tiny little bit because the sensor's off and it makes a little bit more PTH than it should. It's not dramatic. It's about, it usually ends up being about this level.
2: And so you'd actually have the same abnormalities on on labs. Yeah, so the as urinary the calcium familial. Interesting. Yeah.
1: The urinary calcium tends to also end up being low. So that usually ends up being the case. That calcium levels tend to be a little bit high, the PTH inappropriately high. Most of the time it's just inappropriately elevated as opposed to being frankly frankly high. Eventually, though, I mean, like you know, this happens in the hypercalcemia. You can get a secondary hypercalcemia and renal failure because there's a down regulation of those calcium sensing receptors and then the parathyroid glands without that, that regulation they end up hypertrophy right? they basically end up growing so once in a while if you actually end up having a problem with it with sensing anything if you have a predisposition for an adenoma you know that intervention may actually end up in a vein, like may actually end up uh, pushing you along the pathway of uh, uh, having that man- that adenoma parathyroid adenoma become manifest
0: what what's the signal that's growing the the parathyroid glands? Where's it coming from? I'm trying to think. I know with thyroid, like if you know yeah. your TSH will it's, grow your thyroid. It's, the right? calcium, but,
1: it's a calcium sensing receptor. Like basically yeah. the two main the two main signals that actually tell the uh, parathyroid gland to like actually grow or stop growing end up being the calcium sensing receptor, which is like okay. depending on the amount of calcium, right? The the, the, yeah. the ambient calcium that the gland sees. And the other one is vitamin D receptor activated by the calcitriol. The active active form of uh, vitamin D, the 125 vitamin D actually has a role in um, determining hmm. the growth of the parathyroid cells in the, oh, wow. the parathyroid glands. Okay. So it's beautiful. I mean, like, right, you can actually start seeing how everything is connected.
2: Yeah. yeah. That's lovely.
0: Well, with with so it sounds like with Miss uh, and what's her first name? Well, we'll let's just call her Cal. Cal. I'm, I'm, I'm getting struck. Nora, Cal your name was Carl. too. Fa- yeah. <laughs> your name exactly. was too clever. <laughs> it's, it's the name was it's a clever too clever. Name. It's a good name. Yeah. So we with with Cal. What might we do? We we repeat it. Yeah. It's it's still high. Yes. Uh, she's taking, if she, if we find out she's taking lithium, are we done or what, what, no, like, I what's mean, our I would course say of action?
1: You still, you still want to confirm that it's a PTH mediated process. So like a, I, I would say that the normal workup, you know, let's, let's just, uh, go in and you have somebody who's got elevated calcium. The first thing is repeat it exactly what you said, Matt. And then, but at that repeat, I always end up adding the albumin because sometimes it's not added on. I frequently add the phosphate. It's like one of the, the clinical pearls that I tell the trainees to end up doing and the, the parathyroid uh, levels as well as the, the 25 vitamin D levels. So that's like my first set. And, and the reason I, I add on the is the phosphate comes back a lot faster than the PTH value. And remember PTH is the primary regulator of calcium in the body, but it's also one of the primary regulators of phosphate in the body. So if, a process is PTH mediated, the hypercalcemia is PTH mediated, the phosphate tends to be on the lower limits of normal. Most of the causes that are PTH independent causes of hypercalcemia suppress your PTH levels. So the phosphate tends to be on the upper limits of normal. So the one exception is PTHRP, you know, so remember that, but it's, it's a great trick that you start actually end up getting a sense of whether uh, the, the cause of the hypercalcemia is uh, PTH dependent or not.
0: Awesome. I love that. And you mentioned 25 vitamin D. That's the, just the 25 OH vitamin D. Don't, don't order the active, the 125 OH. I know I see yeah. it happen like a lot of the time. Uh, it, it I think it's mostly by accident, but it's. Yes.
1: Yes, it, it's a it's an expensive test. Um, and it also it doesn't at this point, you're, you're, you're going to be thinking is a PTH dependent or not, right? So mm-hmm. like you definitely want to order the 125 vitamin D, if it's PTH independent, and you don't have a good explanation for it, one of the causes could be sarcoidosis or other granulomatous disorders that can be caused, but you know that basically that the cost of the hypercalcemia is because of high amount of unregulated 125 vitamin D production.
0: I guess let's say we're at this visit with Cal no. and we're telling her, okay, we're going to order albumin, FOS, PTH, and the twenty five OH vitamin D and we're repeating the calcium. What sort of things, I mean, would you expect her to have any symptoms with the calcium at this level? Um, and yeah, let's talk about symptoms first yeah. and we could talk about yeah. any exam stuff next.
1: So I, I think we've all heard that that the, the, the uh, mnemonic of like uh, bones, stones, groans, and psychiatric overtones—it's really useful. I think it keeps everything organizi- organized because those are the big categories. But that really ends up being for severe high levels of, of calcium, or calcium that happens like you know if you start off at very low and then you just all of a sudden like that the acuity of the calcium increase also matters. So in those categories, like if you actually end up having the bones, most of the time, like the primary symptom that you end up getting with severe hypercalcemia, pri- primarily if it's caused by uh, primary hyperparathyroidism, is you can get bone tumors, like the brown tumors. You can get the phosphate wasting that happens because of the high PTH can cause an ostimulation that can cause pain in the bone. But with mild hypercalcemia, you really don't actually end up having, like it, the bones don't hurt. The one thing you can get if it's because of of, um, uh, increased bone turnover, for whatever reason, you can become a little bit more uh, fragile and you can lead to osteoporosis and fractures, right? Then for um, the the stones, it's talking about kidneys. So the uh, calcium gets filtered by the kidneys. And if you have too much calcium, you can get kidney stones. Like it just, uh, you get uh, crystallization of the calcium in in the kidneys and that leads to kidney stones. At severe levels, you can also end up having vasoconstriction and that causes renal dysfunction because of the the vasoconstriction affecting renal flow. And you can get even nephrocalcinosis, like just basically almost like a coating of the kidney with a, with a large amounts of cal- calcium. That usually takes high calcium levels for a long period of time. Uh, So renal failure and nephrocalcinosis are are the extreme end. And more commonly, you you may actually end up seeing some patients, even at mild uh, calciums for a while who become dehydrated, can precipitate kidney stones. For groans, you basically, at the mild end of the spectrum, it's just constipation, a little bit of GI upset. And at the severe end, you end up uh, with pancreatitis and like peptic ulcer disease. Uh, So, you know, that's the range. And then the, the psychiatric overtones, uh, again, the mild end of the spectrum is just a little bit of fatigue, a little forgetful, maybe a little bit down, but that can lead to severe coma. I mean, like that could be delirium, that could be true confusion because of the hypercalcemia. So that's a good way of organizing it from mild to to severe, and at least in those different categories.
2: Out of, just out of curiosity, is there any understanding of why the the depressive and anxiety symptoms like or or is it just an association? Don't at this know, point?
1: I mean, we do know that there's calcium sensing receptors in the brain, mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's a lot of uh, signal. Remember like calcium is really important for um for life. I mean, like it's it's a critical component uh, in our bodies to actually end up uh, regulating a whole host of uh, uh, processes and it's it's actually one of the things that that people don't realize much is that it is. Factor four in the clotting cascade, right? It's calcium. Like we don't call it factor four. Like we actually end up going through <laughs> because we call it calcium. It's got another name. Um, it, it's important for muscle contraction. It's important for the, the, the uh, electrical signals in the heart, right? And like it, it's mm-hmm. actually really, uh, it's a second messenger, intracellular second messenger. So the concentrations of intracellular calcium are tightly, tightly regulated. And that's actually probably, if you have too much, that regulation probably falls off. So it's just a little hand waving specifically I can't tell you what it is but it I can just it's a way of highlighting the importance of of calcium not only for its structural aspects of bone but also for cell cell function.
0: When you when you grade hypercalcemia you you mentioned the more severe can you just give us a range like for mild moderate severe yeah. what what you think how you think about that? I would say
1: like 12 is like my cutoff, like i actually end up saying most people will tolerate like like the low 11s fairly well, right? They're they're not going to have that that many symptoms. Once you start inching up to the 12s, you probably start seeing a little bit of symptoms. Um, so that I would say it's like, you know, a cutoff point that I start actually paying a little bit more attention and something that I start becoming a little bit worried about managing in the ambulatory setting, you know, saying like drink a lot of fluids, like repeat this and et cetera. If it stays about 12, particularly if somebody has renal dysfunction, remember like the body deals with hypercalcemia by peeing it out. You know, if you can't pee it out because you can't filter, your GFR is off uh because of an impaired kidney function, at 12. Uh, Calcium 12 with impaired renal function is actually something that I get very nervous about. Somebody is a calcium 12 has a really good uh, kidney. I say drink and and no, no cardiovascular problems. Say drink a lot of salt. (laughs) I mean, drink a lot of water and have a lot of salt. So, actually, end up like causing that the, the same thing as like IV fluids, right? And I, and I can usually bring that down. Once you get above 12, I start getting a little bit more nervous, and I, I would say that that's more of my moderate hypercalcemia, like 12 to 14. And a lot of things, people tend to be a little bit more symptomatic at that at that range. If it happens slowly, the fewer symptoms that you'll actually end up seeing. Uh, but, you know, that's really when I expect to see uh, patients actually start having some complications from the hypercalcemia. And then above 14, we start actually getting into the, the hypercalcemic crisis territory. And that I become, you know, like that one definitely requires uh, hospitalization and, and um, uh, inpatient management with a large amount of, uh, of hydration. That's the number one thing that you'll do.
0: This episode is brought to you by Pattern. You know audience, I I try to be a responsible person. I try to get all my ducks in a row. And part of that when I became an adult, when I started having a job, being a resident, having money, it's getting insurance. Yes, that's right. Insurance. There's life insurance, there's disability insurance. As a physician, I think you should have long-term disability insurance. I have it. So let me tell you about our sponsor pattern. They give you a quick, simple way to compare and buy disability insurance because busy doctors shouldn't have to worry about whether or not they are getting the best rates and discounts and trying to research all your options and make the right decision while in training can make the process even more overwhelming. And that's why thousands of doctors trust Pattern to help them compare and understand the disability insurance they are buying. They do this in three simple steps. First off, you request your quotes online at patternlife.com slash curbsiders. Second, compare your options and ask questions. And third, secure your policy. So check disability insurance off your list today. Be confident that you have the right policy so that your income is protected. I want that for you. Paul wants that for you. And you're going to want that for yourself looking back. With huge discounts for doctors and training now is truly the best time to request your disability insurance quotes with Pattern at PatternLife.com dot com slash curbsiders that's patternlife.com dot com slash curbsiders hey, have you seen patients up in that 14 range or higher uh who don't have i've seen it with patients with head and neck like squamous cell yeah. cancers uh, have you seen it yeah. in other do other conditions cause that <laughs> high of a level that you've seen
1: Yes, yes. I mean, one of the ones that's like very uh, unfortunately, like, but I definitely have seen it with um, milk alkali. You know, patients who take a large amount of calcium. And and uh, one thing that I want you to like leave this with. Or I mean, like, and I'll say it again because it's like it's uh, the same way that I'm coupling calcium to albumin. I want you to to couple hypercalcemia with kidney function. I have seen patients who take large amounts of calcium. And large amounts of vitamin D for bone protection, you know, for their health. That's like, you know, they're in train thought. They're fine for a long time because like they're peeing out huge amounts of calcium. I mean, like they have, that's how the body has protected them. They take ibuprofen because of a dental abscess or something. And then they also get dehydrated because they can't eat because like they, they have a dental abscess and then their kidney function shuts down and they have the exact same thing that they took Wednesday. They're now taking Thursday, but now with impaired renal dysfunction, those calcium levels can actually end up going up pretty high Uh, and it is important. We tend to, we filter approximately 10 grams of calcium per day in our kidneys. Like that's how much like goes through and we reabsorb almost all of it. Right. I mean, like it is incredible. Like it's like we only put out on average about 200 milligrams. Um, but if you can't pee out, right. I mean, like if you, if you calcium levels get really high, you will pee out a big amount of that excess calcium, but if you can't, you will actually end up, uh, the, the calcium levels will rise. So uh, that's one of the major key points. I don't want you to actually end up remembering. It's like calcium albumin, hypercalcemia, look at the kidney function.
0: All right. Well, we we had jumped ahead before and we we said what we were going to do for our first round of testing. On the physical exam, for someone like her, other than looking for evidence of dehydration, is there anything specific that that we should look for that you think maybe people miss or
1: I mean, I would say, like, the big one's going to be, like, evidence of kidney stones. Like, you know, go ahead and and, uh, look for CDA tenderness. Uh, You know, that's one of the things that you can actually end up uh, getting. Um, uh, The dehydration, if, like, occasionally you'll pick up some patients who who have MEN syndromes, like, in which, remember, the number one manifestation of MEN1 is going to be primary hyperparathyroidism. So that's going to be, do they have, like, any evidence of uh, um, this conjugate gaze that could point to a pituitary tumor? Do they have galacteria? Uh, do they have little um, angiofibromas, facial angiofibromas, lipomas, things that you can actually end up picking up on, on physical exam. But besides that, I would say dehydration is going to be the, the the number one thing that, that you'll be focusing on.
2: And then just jumping back to the history just for a second, is there anything else that we should be sure we ask about in terms of medications? Um...
1: Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, like that's where it was getting to the the, the milk alkali syndrome, yeah. right? It. it it can be that somebody has multiple causes of hypercalcemia, right? So if somebody has primary hyperparathyroidism and renal dysfunction and it's taking large amounts of calcium and, and uh, vitamin D, you have primary hyperparathyroidism and milk alkali together, right? Or you can have primary hyperparathyroidism because it doesn't care whether you have sarcoid or not, like you, you're going to get it. So you can have two things that could actually end up augmenting the the calcium levels. So um, one of the things I always end up asking if you're dealing with somebody who's got uh, hypercalcemia is going to be how much calcium do you take? How much like, you know, dietary calcium, how much vitamin D do you actually end up taking? I ask specifically if they take activated vitamin D calcitriol. So it's got a much narrower therapeutic window than 25 vitamin D. Uh, Because remember, if you take too much 25 vitamin D, the PTH levels come down. You don't activate it. So there's a buffer before you actually end up having a toxic amount of like increased absorption. It, it can get toxic, but it, it's a, you have a buffer. As opposed to 125 vitamin D, the PTH comes down, but you still, are act, you, you still have the active form of vitamin D in, in your circulation
0: is the over the counter they sell vitamin D2 yes. vitamin D3 is yes. are those the same thing or is one of They're them the calc- okay and then calcitriol is a different
1: that is prescription grade that's a pre- so like the prescription they can only get exactly it's only a prescription okay that's um, the one
0: that patients with on dialysis so a lot of the times i see exactly. them on that okay i would
1: say there is physician error i have seen uh a lot of the times like if few like it could be that that that. um uh because of the way that you order it you try to order a just vitamin D and it comes up as a 125 vitamin D and it gets ordered and it's calcitriol and um I have seen that I have seen patients yeah. it, it's just an error right I mean, like that they're taking this um uh whole, it's actually I've seen it a lot less with the electronic medical record compared to before but it is it's something that thankfully it's not very common but it can happen
0: we we talked to our friend Joel Toff about thiazide diuretics this is like way back yeah how they actually showed some bone protection with them because they increased reabsorption of calcium yes so i guess we have to think of that as another common med in internal medicine
1: yes um it it tends to be a little bit like the through a different mechanism right we talked about that the mechanism of lithium that you tend to actually end up reabsorbing some calcium because of the calcium sensing receptor in in the in the in the kidney and also through a pth mediated mechanism Uh, And hydrochlorothiocytes and the thiocytes basically end up increasing the the calcium level slightly because of the effects in the distal convoluted tubule. So you end up having an increase in the reabsorption. It's not much, though, because the PTH uh, glands can respond. If you reabsorb too much calcium, the the, uh, calcium sensing receptors in the parathyroid glands are going to sense it. They're going to shut down the PTH. And then if you shut down the PTH, you'll filter a little bit more uh, calcium to offset some of the increase. So be be mindful that if you see a true increase in the serum calcium levels because of uh, hydrochlorothiazide or thiazide, uh starting a thiazide, be mindful that you may be unmasking a primary hyperparathyroid uh, process.
0: Oh, wow. So I think in this case here, Yes, it wouldn't be uncommon, you know, if she's on lithium. Yeah. um, you know, may, maybe we wouldn't have her on a thiazide diuretic, but it's it's pretty common for us to have someone that's on a thiazide diuretic. And because they're a, w- a woman over fifty, you know, they're just taking calcium and vitamin D because yeah. all their friends do, and they yes. they heard it's good for their bones. And yes. we can get into that on another show, uh, whether or not that actually pans out in in the literature, but uh would you should we just tell her to stop i mean we're not going to stop the lithium cuz that could be disastrous without you know really thinking about it but just stop the calcium and vitamin d and uh, and then w- we're we're waiting on our lab panel do you have any other approach to that
1: yeah. So I would say at the very beginning, while we're waiting on the lab panel, like saying, like, stop the calcium vitamin D hydrate. I mean, like, you know, truly yeah. we have the creatinine of 0.9 right here that she had any, any, um, evidence of heart failure. So I would definitely end up just saying, just drink a lot of fluid. Just drink a lot of fluid. Make sure, like, you know, be careful about adding NSAIDs, um, to actually end up decreasing the, the, the production, you know, the, the filtration and decreasing your GFR. But, um, then the, the other thing that, um, you probably just want to end up saying it's going to be, is it PTH dependent or not? Can you stop the lithium, right? I mean, like that's actually one of the, the questions you end up having. Somebody just started it. You probably can can stop it and, and look for other agents. But if somebody's been stable on it, it's hard to stop. There is a new, like relatively uh, targeted therapy that's going to be cinacalcet, right? That they basically um, act on the calcium sensing receptors and bring down its function. It says like you know kind of tricks the calcium sensing receptor into thinking that there's more calcium. So the PTH levels come down. So that's a that's something that we do. I mean it's like it's kind you know, of a prescribing
0: cascade, but if it but lithium's an important med. I mean it's if it's keeping met. someone functioning. So that's exactly I guess I'm okay with it as a
1: <laughs> Yeah. I mean we try it. I would say like you know we definitely see this. Um, most of the time the mild hypercalcemia you can monitor like you know they get to the upper limits of normal. Sometimes they yeah. cross over a little bit. It's fine, just monitor and like just avoid dehydration. Once you start getting to like, you know, 11.5 is particular, remember hypercalcemia, always look at the at the kidney function. So once you start seeing it, they get older and the kidney function starts coming down. I would start at least thinking about other um other interventions. Like you know, that's where where the cynicalcit the could be uh something that you can consider. It, um, you can also sometimes do parathyroidectomy, particularly if the calcium levels get very high, like in that 12 and above range, you know, like uh, you start actually end up considering it. Or if there's symptoms, like, you know, it's, sometimes it's difficult to tell if you start seeing lethargy.
0: Nora, let's go on with the case here. And uh, we're, I think we're going to flush out this diagnosis a little more.
2: Yeah, so we get a few more labs and we actually get Ms. Seema's PTH level which is quite elevated at 160 um and so so just with that information by itself what what do you think is going on here
1: yeah so that that means that uh, most of the time like i told you that the cal- if it's a lithium uh, mediated process most of the time that the uh, PTH tends to be in the upper limit to normal with the high calcium so inappropriately normal um once you get frankly elevated you know like and now we're talking probably like 2 to 3 times the upper limits of normal then i definitely start thinking a little bit more of primary hyperparathyroidism you know that is like that the my thought process here that it could be lithium was a, was a possibility but you can have a, a mild increase in the, in the in the calcium levels because of lithium, and still have a primary hyperparathyroid, like a, still have a parathyroid adenoma and primary hyperparathyroidism. So that's the that's the evaluation, and it's common in this age in this uh, um, age group in this demographic, right? It's like it's a postmenopausal women um, tend to actually end up having primary hyperparathyroidism. So. Once you have, if you, if you suspect the diagnosis of primary hyperparathyroidism because you have high calciums, uh, high PTHs, or inappropriately elevated PTHs, then the, the next question that you're faced with is, should I send this patient to surgery or not? Do they need a parathyroidectomy? And there's a 2013-14, it came out in 2014, guidelines that basically deals with this problem because it's very common. And the indications, the recommendations for sending somebody to surgery ends up including age less than 50, somebody's young, and that's because the long uh, time frame in which you'll have to follow them, it's a cost effective argument. And also if it happened earlier, there's a greater risk of actually being more aggressive disease. The second one is going to be if somebody's calcium is very high, like in the, like about one milligrams per deciliter above the upper limits of normal. That is a, another indication for uh, surgery. If somebody has renal dysfunction, this was the most controversial the most controversial of the of the um indications, because remember, this happens in older people. <laughs> their renal dysfunctions can be common. so exactly. So that happens a lot. You will see that, and that will be an indication if you're like a purist of actually sending somebody to surgery, but know why it exists. Uh, The reason it's there is because renal dysfunction will also predispose you to, to bone loss. So there's a synergistic effect between renal dysfunction and primary hyperparathyroidism. So that's the reason, at least like you, if you know that, you're going to be paying a lot, like automatically, the next thing that you're going to be paying attention to is going to be what happens to the bone.
0: Mm-hmm. And based uh, on what you told us before, it seems like they'd be more at risk for like severe, you know, if they yes. get dehydrated, they could get into trouble exactly.
1: with it. Exactly. So they, they have like, so those are the ones, I mean, like I, I definitely would say, I have a much lower threshold if somebody has a lot of episodes of dehydration, can't like, you know, like have cognitive impairment, they can't cook for themselves, right? They can't take care of themselves, much lower threshold to go ahead and and using that as an indication for sending them to surgery. Then along the same lines, the kidney, like, you know, remember we talked a lot about the the risk of kidney stones is another thing that we pay attention to. So if somebody has had kidney stones, they're symptomatic and we send those patients to surgery. If they have a risk of kidney stones based on 24-hour urine measurements, uh, and usually it's not just hypercalcemia, but also hypercalcemia and the presence of hypercalciuria, or increase uh, um, phosphate levels, or decrease oxalate, those like uh, that's really when we actually end up saying, increased risk of kidney stones, go ahead and, and do parathyroidectomy. Then we turn it to the bones. And at the bones, we basically, um, oh, and by the way, I, I want to point out one thing. Um, if you have asymptomatic kidney stones is an indication for surgery. So how are you going to find asymptomatic kidney stones? Imaging studies. Whether it's been uh, an imaging study that you got for something else or you order it because you just made the diagnosis of primary hyperparathyroidism, I usually order a, a renal ultrasound. So that's, that's a big deal. I would say most people, and that was not present in the previous guidelines and the 2008 guidelines did not have that as a, uh, as an indication. So now like that's actually what the guidelines end up requiring to do a renal ultrasound or some assessment to look for asymptomatic kidney stones. And then the same, the same thing happens also for the bones. Everybody will probably end up knowing, go ahead and do a bone density but make sure that when you do that bone density you also get the wrist it's the most sensitive way of picking up bone loss in primary hyperparathyroidism not just the the, the spine but and, and the hip but also add on the, the wrist and this is the, the very this analogous to like the, the asymptomatic kidney stones you want to look for asymptomatic vertebral fractures and that means doing dedicated spine imaging most of the time I do it at the same time as uh, my bone density through a VFA analysis or, or vertebral fracture assessment uh, at the same time as the, as the uh, bone density that looks at the entire spine and just looks at the morphology of the, of the vertebrae. And it's a pretty good. It's not as good as the, the um, dedicated uh, films, spine films, but it's, it's very good and that's an extra like that's an extra step that wasn't present in 2008 guidelines so not everybody's doing it i would say like that is yeah like one i step.
0: haven't heard of that and I, yeah. I i wonder most bone densities that i'm ordering are axial skeleton yes. and and they're looking at the they're they're looking at the lumbar, lumbar spine and then usually a femoral head and yeah. femoral neck so you're ordering a bone density of the of the wrist and then wrist. this this vfa that you said yeah. is that I don't know. I'll have to look around and see if yeah. I can order that. I don't know. Yeah. I don't even know if my institution offers it, it probably for sure. Does. It, it probably, probably does. does. It probably I'll have does. to ask my endocrinology yeah. friends about exactly. that locally. it locally.
2: Do you order it the same way? Is it just an add on component? You just of actually, the DEXA we, exactly. we okay. just put
1: in like the, the add on and saying, like, you know, do a BFA. So most okay. machines are now capable of doing it. When it first came out, very few. Uh, were able to do this, but now I would say that of many, many machines can actually end up doing this now. Okay. Um, and it is important to know that only about a third of vertebral fractures are symptomatic. That's the reason hmm. behind that. It's like, people don't really realize this, like, you know, but you actually will pick up a lot of asymptomatic fractures on, on imaging. And, and you ask the patient, that you remember what happened here? It's like, they, they don't know. So it's only about a third of the vertebral fractures end up being symptomatic.
0: And do they have to have osteoporosis or does osteopenia qualify you? Is it just like high osteopenia with high risk? or? Yeah,
1: so that's really, I would say like the guidelines are by osteoporosis at any site or the presence of uh, vertebral fracture, like asymptomatic vertebral mm-hmm. fracture. Obviously, if they've qualified um, and they've had a fracture, fragility fracture in the past, that's an indication for surgery. Right. So in reality, the ways that you can actually end up uh, saying you have primary hyperparathyroidism, ask for symptoms of it. And the symptoms are going to be kidney stones and fractures, like fragility fractures. If you have that, don't have to do that much of a, a, a additional assessment. You basically end up saying like you're ready for surgery. If you don't, and that's 85% of patients with primary hyperparathyroidism are asymptomatic, right? They don't have anything. Then you go down that pathway of actually end up saying, do they have these other indications? What's their kidney function? What's their calcium levels? What is their um, uh, 24-hour urine? What is their renal uh, ultrasound uh, show? What is the full set of DEXA, including the wrist? And what's their VFA or spine films?
0: Can can you go into the twenty four hour urine and I, yeah. you know I I had mentioned to you that the the familial hypocalciuric yeah. hypercalcemia yeah, so low low calcium in the urine right yeah. so I imagine we're doing a twenty four hour study yes uh, do you have any tricks to getting this done the way you want it and and not just <laughs> returning with like results yes. that you're uninterpretable
1: yes I mean, one one thing that I I do um, one uh, I don't know if I can promote a company it's like i have no stock in this like it, you know it's but i use litholink a lot it's a tw- it's a, a company that does a lot of uh, measurements of 24-hour urine and a lot of the uh, other um, electrolytes in, in the in the urine, like all at once in one collection, like that includes that the uric acid, it includes the phosphate, it right. includes oxalate, etc. One of those it, stone
0: panels. It's that... a
1: stone panel, and it's like it's really easy for the patients because like they can actually just go ahead and they get a kit gets mailed to them, and then the the patient drops it off in the in in uh, FedEx. Uh, and so it's easy. Like they don't yeah. have to come in. Like, and,
0: I, and Quest and around. LabCorp have similar things. Yes. Uh, they, they probably call them something different just yes. so we can mention multiple brands. Since exactly. This is a CME that's, activity.
1: Exactly. That's the part that I didn't want to get into trouble with. Yeah. Um, so that is, that's just the, one of the ones, practically one of the, the companies that we end up using. I'm sure that there's going to be other, um, uh, companies that do that, uh, that service, but that's useful. And then, um, we, that the, uh, it is the values are that the, they go through entire gamut of like, you know, very low calciums to high calciums. If you see low urinary calciums, you start thinking of the possibility of having FF, FHH, right? That means that the calcium sensing receptor in the kidney thinks that there's not enough calcium, which starts promoting the reabsorption of calcium. However, be really be, be aware of the epidemiology. FHH is really rare. Primary hyperparathyroidism is really common. But it's right?
0: on all my board exams, exactly. Carl. Come on. It is. It How is. can it be rare? <laughs> it
1: is. So that is like, so before you get excited, you know, about like making a diagnosis of FHH, look for other things that could actually end up causing hypercalcemia. And the number one cause is something that we already discussed, which is thyroids. Some reason yeah. thiazides, primary hyperparathyroidism, The urinary calcium can actually end up being low. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing that I frequently end up looking at. So, like, if you have FHH, is, uh, the, the prime, the primary difference between FHH and the, the, um, um, primary hyperparathyroidism, which is an acquired dysfunction, right? Is that you have, you're born with this abnormal calcium sensing receptor. So from birth, your calcium levels end up being high. So if you go back to somebody's uh, previous calciums uh, who has FHH, they're always high. It's just a reset set point for the calcium concentration. In this case, we don't have it, you know, so you can't tell. You can, uh, then you have to rely on the the, um, urinary calcium. And then even then, statistically, I'm going to start thinking most likely it's not FHH. So I look at the urinary calcium. If that's really low, then you can start thinking about doing a genetic analysis. You know, like that's, that is actually one of the things that there's panels that you can order uh, to look for FHH.
2: And their ionized calcium would be high as it's well? It's high as well. It okay. is high. In I mean, it is, it's total. a
1: truly reset uh, um, set point of the calcium levels. So the total and ionized levels are high, but the calcium sensing receptor can't tell it's high, right? It, it just thinks that it's a little bit lower.
0: I wanted to ask about um, if Cal wasn't on lithium and she yeah. was just on a thiazide and some calcium and vitamin yeah. D and uh, and and then the rest of her labs were normal, would you, uh, like as a primary care, if we wanted to yeah. keep her on the thiazide, would it be reasonable to stop the calcium vitamin D, repeat it? And now if it's like 10.5 and, and she's on a thiazide, just say, this is the thiazide and I'm just going to let it yeah. ride. I mean-
1: I mean, I would say that you're probably, you unmask a primary hyperparathyroidism, right? Like even if the calcium levels are, are um, up a little bit to normal, the PTH, the a, a adenoma, parathyroid adenoma still responds to the calcium, right? So if you yeah. increase the levels higher, it brings down the PTH. If you normalize the calcium levels, those PTH levels are going to go up higher. Oh, okay. So, my guess is that if you, yes, if you stop taking additional calcium, if you uh, change the thigh etc., et cetera, the calcium loss connection up dropping, but the PTH goes up and you still have the potential for the bone damage, right? And like oh, the bone turnover. that's interesting. So I would definitely end up saying like once you have primary hyperparathyroidism, start actually looking at like the complications of primary hyperparathyroidism that could potentially end up being yeah. treated with a, with a surgical intervention.
0: But I think what I I what I was asking is more I, I see like a lot of these when I see these calcium's of 10.5 yeah. and if I work it up and the parathyroid levels are normal and I'm not worried for primary hyperpara <laughs> do I have yeah. to stop their thiazide cuz their calcium's 10.5 or 10.6 I mean you, I,
1: you can monitor right yeah. like the, the, the components monitoring and be careful about uh not about dismissing a non elevated PTH okay Right. Because if, if the calcium levels are like 10.5 and the PTH is 60, like, you know, right at the upper limits of normal, yeah. they may be like, you may actually end up like, a, a, you may have just unmasked somebody who's heading into the, the primary hypertrophy. I see. So you should right? still monitor. So monitor. Like, you don't, it doesn't mean it's emergent, but let this be something that you follow.
0: Nora, this goes way deeper. It's I way know. It's it's, way more nuanced than I thought.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it, it tends to be, right? Like that's it, the I was telling Nora yeah. earlier that I used to think that calcium and bone was so boring <laughs> when I was in medical school. Oh, and then the more I learned, I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. This is actually like, you know, like you start yeah. realizing the beauty and and the the, the controls
0: oh yeah i I never thought it was boring i think it's i I think it's fascinating. part of why we wanted to do this episode is because we wanted to make sure it had a better handle on it all right so we we talked about the indications for surgery with primary hyperpara. We talked a little bit about the twenty four hour urines and uh uh f h h so Nora, you want to bring us to the- like let's conclude this first part of the case and we'll change it up a little bit make it more of an emergency.
2: So we end up actually stopping Cal's lithium and transitioning her safely. Her PTH and her calcium still remain elevated, though, suggesting we en a primary hyperparathyroidism. Um, she has a nodule and so undergoes surgical removal, and her hypercalcemia resolves at that point. Um, so, actually, one brief question before yes, we yes. before we jump into the the inpatient setting. Um, does surgery always involve uh removal of all four parathyroid oh, no, no, glands no, no. just no, the no. adenoma exactly
1: um, okay. so just the adenoma yeah. you definitely like you don't want to get it's um hypocalcemia because of hypoparathyroidism is a tough disease to mm-hmm. treat it's like so you you really want to make sure that the person doing this is a good surgeon um that that does this all the time it, because it means that you're um much more likely to end up having good uh, effort, like a uh, efficacy in terms of like removing that the, the culprit parathyroid lesion and remaining and the remaining glands are healthy and that it goes back to normal you have a transient hypercalcemia but um over time like it basically recover and you're back to normal it's almost like a surgical cure um so it's it's uh, you don't want to remove all four
2: Perfect. Just wanted to clarify yes, that. Yes, yes. Um, so jumping to the, the a change in the case, let's say she wasn't actually on lithium and her calcium when she presented to you was 14 and a half. So, so we often, in, on the inpatient side, think of hypercalcemic emergencies. Yeah. And so just very briefly from a kind of uh, symptom and, and uh, down the line uh, morbidity perspective, what, what are the risks of severe hypercalcemia and how do you actually define that?
1: Yeah, so I would say that the severe hypercalcemia, it's predominantly manifested by a uh, changes in thorium. So like I would say that the primary manifestations that you're going to end up getting is going to be confusion all the way down, like lethargy, confusion, coma. I mean, like it really ends up being as the calcium levels go up. It can also cause renal dysfunction. And remember how I told you that it, it can cause that the vasoconstriction. Uh, one of the first organs that gets affected by the vasoconstriction is going to be the kidney. And that starts that bad cycle that I, that I was telling you about, like the vicious cycle of decreased GFR you decrease the the body's ability to compensate for the hypocalcemia. The calcium levels go up, calcium levels go up, worsening renal function, et cetera. So that is a true vicious cycle. Um, You can also end up seeing some cardiovascular manifestations, like you can have a a shortening of the the QT interval, uh, hypertension, usually because of the closing of the basic constriction. But the big ones to end up remembering is going to be altered mental status and renal dysfunction.
0: With this, uh, this person coming in, uh, she's coming into the, let's, let's say we're bringing her into the hospital because she has altered sensorium yeah. and she's got a calcium of 14.5. Would you pull yeah. the trigger on a different workup than what we talked about before? Like our initial workup, we said was going to be albumin, FOSS, PTH, 25 OH, vitamin D. How might it differ for someone <laughs> where you're, maybe now you're thinking more of malignancy
1: yeah, in the yes. differential? So I would still send those because, right. like, you you keep your fingers crossed that it's like a a, um, a it, that this is because of a primary hyperparathyroidism because that's easy to treat, right? Like, you yeah, can she that just out. she's got like
0: mm-hmm. AKI, exactly. primary hyperparathyroidism. She gave herself milk alcohol. Exactly. She gave herself. Milk,
1: exactly, she gave herself. <laughs> so I would say, like, that you will be surprised, like, how frequently that can actually end up happening because of the underlying population that has primary hyperparathyroidism. Okay, like, it's like it's so common all it takes is a little trigger that makes the calciums go up pretty high. So you keep your fingers crossed that that's the case, you stop all the calcium and, and you have uh primary hyperparathyroidism. Most of the time it's not, uh, <laughs> then you start, but you do send off everything. And in addition to that, basically, if you come back and that the, the, the um, uh, PTH comes back, you know, it comes back relatively fast nowadays. Uh, so within the same day, it uh, probably won't be within, you know, just a few hours, you'll get the phosphate a little bit faster. That's why it's still a clinical pearl. Um, and then if uh, the PTH is suppressed, then you definitely want to start saying, okay, what's the malignancy ways in which this could occur? And that's going to be PTHRP or the uh, increased bone turnover. So like, you know, like that's going to be like, if you have, you start thinking about skeletal surveys to look for those lytic lesions, you start looking for SPEPS, you know, like that, the, the uh, to find out if there is a underlying multiple myeloma, which is not, a, you know, it's it's not uh, uncommon. And then you start, then going down, make sure you ask a lot about the total amount of calcium vitamin D that they end up taking. Um, find out about um, uh, calcitriol, and then measure the calcitriol levels, the 1,25 vitamin D. Look for granulomatous disorders. And then I do always end up checking ATSH, you know, and I would say I have had this happen that uh, hyperthyroidism makes you lose weight. It can increase the bone turnover. I have had people think that they have cancer because their calcium levels are high. They're losing weight. And it's just hyperthyroidism, right? And that's really common. That's actually really common. So I have had that. And like I, I don't want you to like, uh, end up uh, forgetting that. So measure the, the, the TSH is not as common. Usually it doesn't cause that amount of uh, uh, turnover. But again, if you have impaired renal function, it doesn't take that much uh, increase in the calcium levels to actually end up getting hypercalcemia. So just remember that. That's another, that's an important one. And then once you, you get to the rare stuff, you get like the, the pheochromocytomas or you have the, the vitamin A toxicity or immobility, like particularly burn patients. If you have like young patients um, who have large amounts of uh, muscle mass, uh, sorry, bone mass. And they become immobile. That immobile, that immobilization causes the bone turnover to, 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 um, oh, wow. uh, come out. And it's kind of like that. We all know this happens in astronauts, but it happens in hospitalized patients who can't move. Paralysis, you know, like that's actually one of the things that, that you can actually end up seeing it.
0: Wow. So and the vitamin A thing, that's like the, someone ate say ate a bear's liver before they came into the <laughs> yes. hospital. Polar bear. Polar bear. Polar bear.
1: It's gotta be a carnivore. Yeah, it's gotta be yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that and FHH. I've I mean, seen those exactly, many, many exactly, times. Exactly, exactly,
1: exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so Nora, uh what what's your like Nora, have you had cause to yet? I don't know that I've been cool enough to do this yet, but I, I really just want one day want to give someone saline and a whole bunch I, of loop diuretic. Have you I been actually, doing
2: this? I just did it in yeah, the medical yeah. ICU yeah. Um, oh, man. for someone yeah. who High came five. in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, came in with a calcium of eighteen. It was
0: yeah. Wow. Was I mean, quite
2: altered. Yeah. Also, it, of course, in the setting of of a cancer.
1: If somebody has normal kidney function. You can do a lot, right? I mean, like that really is the most important thing with hypercalcemia: normal kidney function and normal heart that you can actually end up giving a lot of a lot of uh, volume. You're using that uh, 10 grams per day filtering ability mm-hmm. of the kidney to get rid of a large amount of calcium, uh, and it acts kind of quickly, right? I mean, like you can get you can bring down the the, the calcium levels very quickly with this. Adjunctive therapies, like, you know, frequently, like, if somebody has high, high calcium, for 18, their kidney function most likely will actually end up being affected. So you can't just like flood them with, with fluids. So then you have to rely on other causes, uh, other treatments. So one of the, the, the uh, main treatments that, that we actually end up giving, particularly if there is, if the calcium is coming from bone, saying, like, how can we stop it? One of the ways that we stop calcium coming from bone is immediate that works really quickly is to give somebody subcutaneous calcitonin. And that works within hours of administration, right? Uh, the problem is like there's a tachyphylaxis. There's a down regulation of those uh, uh, calcitonin receptors that it stops working after about two days. So you use it for those two days. And at the same time that like, you, you start the, the, the calcitonin, you give an anti-resorptive agent. Most of the time, we basically, depends on the renal function. You can give this If the uh, renal function is normal, like uh, solidronic acid, this is uh, one of the ones that we commonly end up using. It's a little bit more potent than pomidronate. And it works like it actually has an effect that won't really give you much benefit until like about two days later. So it takes a while to work. So that's why it's great to give calcitonin and the bisphosphate, like a, a solidronic acid, you know, almost at the same time, you'll get some coverage from the, from the, um, uh, calcitonin, and then the, the bisphosphonate effects kind of take over when the, the uh, effects of the calcitonin start to wane. If somebody has impaired renal function, you then use the nosomab instead. And that's because bisphosphonates are renally cleared. If they have renal dysfunction, you can actually end up... Uh, um, high levels of bisphosphonates can actually end up worsening the renal uh, function. So with renal dysfunction, we favor the nosumab
2: Does it take the same amount of time to... It actually takes about the same time. It. it
1: also, okay. it also doesn't work right away. Uh, so we give both uh, calcitonin um, at the same time as an antirassortive that could be either like the decision of which antirassortive uh, to end up giving is going to be more depending on the renal dysfunction. But they both, like the nosumab and solidaric acid, take about two days to start actually seeing the effect. Um, and that's assuming that it's coming from bone right I mean like that is like the, the assumption that the that there's a good amount of calcium that's actually coming from from bone. if somebody has predominantly milk alkali like they they get better a lot quicker <laughs> you know that they, they do get better because you stop taking the calcium and the and the and uh, vitamin d you start absorbing it. Uh, you may not need to treat the bone, but there's almost always some component of bone that's coming out. And if the calcium levels get that high, that they're symptomatic, it doesn't hurt to like also try to, uh, tamp down, the, the, the amount that's also coming from bone, um, but it's not going to be as potent as something that's the directly, you know, like the primary cause is a bone mediated, um, uh, process like a bone, um, uh, turnover process. And then the other one is um, um, that you, that's more specific therapy, is if you have a calcitriol mediated, like 125 vitamin D, unregulated production of 125 vitamin D. And that, if it's granulomatous uh, disorders, you can give steroids because it basically ends up treating uh, treating that. Obviously, if somebody takes calcitriol, uh, um, uh, if somebody actually ends up taking calcitriol, steroids are not going to help, <laughs> you know, that that's uh, somebody taking it. Um, so that only works if the one 1- alpha hydroxylase enzyme is being made by something that's responsive to steroids.
0: Yeah. Have you seen surreptitious calcitriol use Ooh. before? You oh have? yes. Oh yes. <laughs> I, I would say surreptitious. And like I
1: got told you, I have also seen a mistake mistake, like an yeah. mistake right? So both components and, and it's confusion could be, from both the perspective of the patient or the prescriber.
0: I I wanted to get back to the fluid just because we've we've talked on this show about normal saline not being normal and a lot of people are (laughs) using lactated ringers. Does it matter if we use saline or lactated ringers in this condition?
1: I would say that the, the overall um, uh, um, effectiveness that you really want is just volume. Just like volume. Okay. And exactly. It's just like a, it's, it's volume. It's not just one liter. Like you really want to flush yeah. the system. Uh, like you're making use of the normal compensatory mechanism mm-hmm. to prevent hypercalcemia, right? Yeah. And that's going to be the kidneys.
0: How often are you using, like Nora was bragging earlier, uh, thanks Nora, about <laughs> using loop diuretics. How often are you using that? When do you recommend them? Is it just if they're in heart failure in yes. addition?
1: Yeah, I would say uh, we don't recommend that, that the use of loop diuretics unless that you actually, it's uh, only to allow you to give more fluid. And Got That it. really is the way actually okay. to actually do it. And that is like necessarily the, the, the treatment. Because you don't want, like one of the things that you don't want is to dehydrate somebody. Yeah. Right. So that's the, that's the danger with the, with the loop diuretics. If you remember, like at the very beginning of the discussion, we had loop diuretics. Um, like you have to be careful about dehydration because you don't want to impair your primary way of getting rid of that calcium, which is going to be the kidneys. If you dehydrate, if you give loop diuretics and somebody already is dehydrated, like you, you know, like they may have a low albumin and you can't, and you're, they're still edematous. Their intravascular volume is low, and you still give them loop diuretics. You're going to impair your primary way of getting rid of
0: that extra calcium. So, I guess I guess one of the, we probably Nora, we'll probably only have time for a couple more questions. One of the things I was going to ask is is about just mistakes that you see made in the in in this hypercalcemia, this emergent yeah. situation.
1: Yeah, I think like one of the, the, one of the big ones is that, right? I would say like not, uh, not acting quickly and, uh, not acting within the window that your kidneys are going to be your allies. Um, so be mindful of that. I mean, like, you know, that is, I cannot over, overemphasize this enough that hypercalcemia, you see high calcium levels. The next thing that you do is look at the, at the uh, renal function. Like that's, uh, that should be automatic. Uh, and the nice thing about it, it's like most of the time that will be available. You don't have to wait for that, right? Because the calcium levels will usually end up uh, coming with the BMP that uh, you'll have that those lab sets available. Uh, the PTH, et cetera, that's going to be uh, down the line. And I do see uh, uh, another cause. Remember how common primary hyperparathyroidism hyperthyroid, is. I do see people not make the diagnosis of primary hyperparathyroidism because the pth is not high but if you have a calcium of 11 and your pth is 50 upper limits are normal but within the normal range that is primary hyperparathyroidism right and that's because you have um if you have high calcium levels assuming the album corrected for albumin <laughs> uh and, and that the patient does not have uh um, pseudo hyper hypercalcemia because of, of a uh, very unique multiple myeloma, very unique immunoglobulin that they have high ionized calcium and high calcium levels and the PTH is fifty, that is primary hyperparathyroidism. And I would say I see that a lot that it gets missed because the the PTH is not flagged as being elevated. but if you have high calciums, the calcium sensing receptor should be active, should sense it, it should bring down the, the and suppress the the PTH.
0: Nora any final questions or do you want to go to take home points
2: I guess one very quick technical question about the calcitonin once you've used it once how soon can you use it again
1: Yeah so that's a, that's a good question that's a, um, I, I, it, I most of the time you will start seeing the effects of the of the um, antiresorptives so you don't need to actually end up relying on the on the calcitonin again uh, and you and you're ready, right? You basically will see will start seeing the effects come down, and then if they need another dose, you'll probably gonna end up giving the there as opposed to the calcitonin. Down the line, like you know, like let's say like months later they develop it and that they come in in crisis, you can still use it.
0: So I think. This has been great. I, I learned so much about this. I like as I said before. I didn't. I didn't realize how deep this got. And uh, there's so many <laughs> great nuances to what you taught us. If you had a couple take-home points that you just yeah. wanted the audience to really have in their mind, what would those be?
1: Yeah. So remember that primary hyperparathyroidism is common. That you can make the diagnosis with high calciums and inappropriately normal pth it doesn't have to be frankly elevated so remember that i would say like that's a big that's a big uh, component remember the workup actually one of the things that doesn't feel natural it's what people tell me is to measure to, to go ahead and do a 24-hour urine for asymptomatic primary hyperparathyroidism uh do a renal ultrasound or like another measure of asymptomatic kidney stones Ex- uh, expand the, the bone density to also end up including the wrist and do an assessment, a spine film assessment, whether VFA or or dedicated spine films, to look for asymptomatic uh, vertebral fractures. Those, that packet, will uh, help you deal with uh, one of the most common, you know, one of the, the most common endocrine disorders that you're likely to end up encountering.
0: All right, thank you so much. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. It feels weird saying this, Nora, without, without Paul here. I haven't, without I haven't, Paul I haven't, or I, Stuart, it's just... Yeah, uh, it's weird. Uh, get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com and get our weekly newsletter directly in your inbox.
2: We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at curbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, myself, Yay. And, um, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov on our website, MJ Allen and Jeff Carter on the transcription team, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Nora Toronto. And I should remind the audience that this and
0: most of our episodes are available for CME credit through VCU Health Continuing Education. You can go to curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And remember, that's free for all listeners. I'd like to thank Stuart for composing our theme music and Claire Morgan of Nauterly for editing our audio. And until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wado. Thank you and good
2: night.